As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Michael, what comes to mind when I say Atlassian, MailChimp, Basecamp? Um, companies that help us communicate digitally. That's true. Anything else? Uh, giant companies that are not based in San Francisco. That's true. They're not based in San Francisco. They have another non-San Francisco thread that ties them together, and that is they've all grown to a big scale, some of which have IPO'd, and none of them have taken the traditional Silicon Valley venture capital funding path. Ah, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Correct. Welcome to Rocketship.fm, the podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales, and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Goldman. 
So by now, you've probably seen the headline, Silicon Valley stunned by slashed evaluations. The Silicon Valley exodus begins. You've probably seen Daniel Morrill's tweet storms about closing your round by Friday or else all the capital will be gone. But what's really going on? We're going to talk to a couple investors, a couple founders about how they perceive what's happening currently. And we're going to take a look at a company who went from bootstrap to IPO outside of Silicon Valley, outside of a lot of the conversation that we're hearing today. So let's get into it. So we hear a lot about this downturn, about how funding is changing, how we had one of our lowest quarters in startup funding in the last year and a half, and how large startups evaluations, often referred to as unicorns, are getting slashed. And people are afraid that this sentiment could trickle down to earlier stage startups, especially if investors don't feel they have the same opportunities in the marketplace right now. They may place their money elsewhere. So we wanted to look into a bit about where did this fear start? And while it's hard to tell or pinpoint one major event, a lot of the public discussion started when Morgan Stanley and Fidelity cut the value of the investments that they they were making in some notable startups like Palantir, Dropbox, Blue Apron, Zenefits, and they seem to be pulling out a little bit um, in investing in these late stage startups, which then cut the valuation of those companies. There's a couple things going on. I mean, for years, billions of dollars have been pouring into these companies as we've started to call them unicorns, special companies. Uh, the problem is that now we're starting to see these publicly, these these funds like Fidelity that have to release data on their valuation of the companies. We're getting a glimpse now for the first time into how they value them and they're they're starting to say, hey, wait a minute. These companies aren't quite worth as much as we thought they were. Jim Breyer, the founder and CEO of Breyer Capital, had a really great quote on this recently. My belief is the public market simply cannot absorb the number of global unicorns that currently exist over the next 24 months. In fact, There are a half dozen to a dozen outstanding companies that are likely to tap and should tap the public markets over the next 24 months, but the 80-20 rule really does apply. 20% deserve, in some cases, their long-term valuations. 80% do not. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. And I think this sentiment is echoed by a lot of investors who came in, especially in the later rounds. And then when we look at the public markets, we have companies like LinkedIn, whose valuation has recently dropped by nearly 50%. We have Etsy, which trading at half of what it went public for. And, and then you have Yahoo, who, despite trying to sell, has been having trouble finding a suitable buyer and has found that most of its stock value is wrapped up in its ownership of Alibaba. 
And so when we start to put this all together, we see that the valuations that we've placed on these companies may be extremely inflated. And thus, investors are worried about their return on their capital if the money that they've already placed is in companies who aren't going to hold the value that they have projected. So we find ourselves in a time where less capital is being placed in early stage startups or in the startup community in general. And this is a bit harder to come by and we need new differentiating factors for raising money. And suddenly we're back to revenue and can a company generate real income? So I went out and talked with Andy White, who's a venture capitalist. He's operated in Las Vegas. He's currently in San Diego about his opinion on downturns. Uh, The fact is, we know that some of the best companies have been built in the downturns. You get smarter. You you don't spend things on on the nice to haves, and you make sure it's the must haves. And uh, it it still you can build quality companies. Uh, it's going to be more challenging to raise capital for fun. It's going to be more challenging to get capital out of funds, but good companies will still be able to get funded. Yes, the funding climate has changed a lot in the last few months compared to the crazy don't say bubble but bubble that we were having before um a lot of a lot of startups are getting a little scared about being able to raise money smart startups are scaling back their spend now to be able to last longer um the thing not to be afraid of is if you have customers who love you and give you money because they love you you will always be able to raise money so focus on that and you will get your checks that was thomas canole of revelry.co and so we heard the same sentiment echoed over and over it's okay calm down If you're generating revenue, you're going to be fine. What we're going to see go away, it appears, is some of those moonshots. Some of the companies where revenue was four to ten years down the line, and without a clear shot to get there, they may have trouble raising that next round that's only going to bridge them to another point of no revenue. But the other thing that we're also seeing here is public market investors coming into the private market and applying that same thought pattern that they take in the public market to the private market. And up until recently, the private market hasn't been held to the same standard as the public market. So public markets, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of buying, selling, that that doesn't happen as much in the private markets. The private markets, the valuations tend to move a little bit slower and are less susceptible to the waning influence of public sentiment. So as we're asking companies to really evaluate the way that they're thinking about their business, Andy makes a really interesting point about the venture capital scene. Um, I'm most excited, and, and especially if there is a downturn, I think there's huge opportunity in an evolving investment infrastructure. Um, it's very ironic that as investors, we want constant innovation and the, the best uh, thinkers in all these different industries, yet the way that we invest has not changed in many years. And this led to one of my favorite conversations we had this year. We'll get to that right after a message from our sponsors. Now back to the show. 
So as we see more venture capitalists and advisors calling for revenue, is it now time to look at the funding model that so incentivizes acquisitions and mergers and figure out a model that would incentivize revenue and longevity and building a business that works? It was becoming clearer and clearer that the kind of seed category that we were hoping to kind of establish in those those kind of early days. Um, this is Bryce Roberts of NDVC. It, it, had been, it, it had been morphing in ways that we didn't fully appreciate and that we didn't fully see kind of back a decade prior. And so... Um, and so really with, with the new fund, we wanted to go back and kind of explore a couple different, um, couple different aspects of the model. And one of those was, was really NDVC. So if you wanted to incentivize founders to build a company, build it for longevity, but you still wanted to be an investor and you still wanted to get your capital back because really that's what investment is about, placing capital, generating a return. How would you set up that model? Well, here's how Bryce Roberts and NDVC tried to solve that problem. Yes. Yeah, so, so what we ended up doing to kind of codify some of those values, we actually came up with um, with a, a separate type of term sheet that we used. Um, and, and and the term sheet, um, if you look at most term sheets, they're out there, especially you know in the seed stage landscape. Most are either pricing around, and then you're you're actually selling shares. Or the other, ask you know the other uh, term that's out there is you know like a bridge note um uh, you know uh, that converts into a subsequent round and i think it's that last part that um that we really wanted to push back on which was you know every document every legal agreement you know kind of presumes that there's another round of funding to either convert into or to you know kind of maximize your share value as that gets repriced by a new investor and so we we came up with a, a set of documents that were friendly to entrepreneurs who were running you know kind of traditional C corps and LLCs that allowed us to invest you know a hundred thousand dollars that was kind of a, a you know an arbitrary number that we picked hundred thousand um, dollars and that if those you know, if, if those companies that we invest in never raise any outside money and don't sell, we never become a shareholder. And so as those companies grow, how we recoup our investment is there's a there's a mechanism in there that triggers off of the salary of the of the founders at the time we fund that says when they want to start pulling money out of the business, we just take a percentage of that until you know we hit a certain threshold and then and then we don't take any more distributions. Um, in the event that they do raise more money, we uh, we would convert you know that that investment we make would convert at a kind of predefined percentage of the of the of the subsequent round and if they sell we we'd own like a you know we'd only become a shareholder at the time uh, they sell and then we take a small piece of that upside. So the way this is set up is they've incentivized their portfolio companies to build a profitable business that's designed for longevity, but. In the event of a acquisition or IPO, really any forced liquidity event, they would then share in the upside. So it seems like a win-win, but yet they flip the tables around from incentivizing companies uh, to look at a short-term gain, which is to shoot for either an IPO or an acquisition. They've they've flipped the tables to incentivize the companies to build a profitable business first. And it'll be really interesting to see that if this works out for them, 
if other venture capital firms start putting funds aside for similar type investments. So let's take a look at a company who did things very differently. This company started with $10,000 on a credit card. They pioneered a new business model that allowed them to bootstrap for a decade and bootstrap their way to a $3.3 billion with a B dollar valuation. And just this past year, they IPO'd. I'm talking, of course, about Atlassian, the makers of Jira, Confluence, HipChat, and others. So first decision we had, uh, which is a bit of a try one for Atlassian, is we chose a scalable model, um, and that made a huge difference. That's Mike Cannon-Brooks, co-founder and CEO of Atlassian. So the decision for us was quite easy in the end of the day. We didn't have any money, so we couldn't hire any salespeople, right? So the Atlassian engine is all about not having any salespeople. Uh, How did that come about? Well, basically, we didn't have any money. So we decided that software had to sell itself. It wasn't so much a decision as we were forced into it. Some of the best decisions you're actually forced into. So essentially, by setting themselves up with this scalable model, this bottom-up selling model, they kept their overhead costs really low. They, they didn't need to employ a big team of salespeople. Their marketing costs were low. And what that did was set a much lower bar for profitability and allowed them to take their time in figuring things out, working on new product development, and growing over time since their goals were to have a lot of customers. So let's fast forward a little bit. The company's been around and operating profitably for years, and they haven't get IPO'd, but they get to a point where they decide to raise. Why would a company who's been so adamant against raising for so long all of a sudden decide it's the right move for them? Yeah, I mean, that's so, it's a longish story, but I mean, yeah, we, we had lots of investment. As soon as we, we started to get some measure of success, then people start chasing you, and uh, hopefully you all experience that. Um, what we were strong on is saying we didn't need it to get to this point. So why would we raise capital now? If we could get it in six months or 12 months, let's get it later. And we built a model and a business that fundamentally monthly brought in more money than we spent. And we were aggressive about spending almost every dollar that we brought in, um, investing in ourselves and taking risks and continue to do that. But we, we never needed the money. So we didn't go and, 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 and get any. And uh, you know when we eventually decided to raise money, we were seven, eight years in. I've told the story a lot of times. We... Uh, looked at the next eight years and thought we needed help. So we went to five firms and uh, raised money. Um, Again, the complicated thing with us is we've never actually taken external capital onto the balance sheet. So the first capital raise we did went to the founders and then the recent capital raise we did, but it's not a capital raise, the recent investment, I guess. uh, The first round was uh, founders selling shares to Excel. And then the second um, round we did uh, earlier this year was employees selling shares to Um, Tiro and other people. So we haven't actually taken kind of institutional capital onto the balance sheet. So the moral of the story is really one that we learn over and over, whether we're looking at fundraising or strategy of growing your business, sales, hiring, you name it. And that is that there's no one right way to do anything. There's going to be a lot of people along the way that tell you this is how you should do X. Um, But this story just goes to show that 
you can be as creative and unique as you want to be and come up with the best strategy that works for you and the kinds of things you're trying to accomplish. And as for the rest of this story, in December of 2015, Atlassian IPO'd. They used the tick name Team, and they were valued at just under $4.4 billion. And that concludes the fourth and final episode of our funding series. I I really hope you've enjoyed kind of taking a look at funding from our point of view. We have one more interview coming at you this Sunday, which will be on funding and advice on raising funding. Coming up next, so next Wednesday, we start our sales series, and this is going to be really good. It's a five or six part series, all on sales, all very tactical advice for selling from multiple different angles. A huge thanks to our sponsor for this series who made this happen, Chargebee. Go to chargebee.com forward slash rocket ship. If you're looking for a subscription billing option, check them out. It's going to be well worth your time. That's chargebee.com forward slash rocket ship. I know there's a lot of you out there who have never reviewed the show. If you've been a long time listener, even a new listener, just leave us a quick review in iTunes. It helps out so much. And if you haven't yet, follow us on Twitter at Rocket Ship FM. You could follow me at Michael Saka and Joel at Joel Goldman. We'll see you here in just a couple days.